Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. It's my pleasure to be joined on the podcast today by Dr. Maria Chatsu Dunford, who is the CEO and co-founder of LifeBit, which is a biotech company. We're going to get into talking all about that. Maria, welcome to the pod. It's great to be here, Grace. (laughs) Um, Now, you are a very busy lady. You've founded multiple companies. You're a biotech innovator. You're an expert in bioinformatics, medical informatics, high-performance computing. You've got a PhD in biomedicine. How did you get into this field? Like, were you, when you were a kid, did you think, I know what I want to do. I want to found a sort of machine learning uh, biotech company. Or how did you get to where you are today? So there were three realizations. Um, The first one came exactly when I was a little girl, (laughs) where uh, I was fascinated by the unknown. And, um, you know, I kind of like never wanted to really become a princess, but I really wanted to become an astrophysicist. <laughs> and then when I was uh, taking my first biology classes, I actually uh, realized that there is a small universe in every cell of our bodies and you don't need to build spaceships to explore it. <laughs> so that was the first reali- big realization. The second realization was a little bit more sad. Um, at that point, I was already finishing my computer science and biomedical informatics degree and deciding on my future. And my grandfather was diagnosed with terminal kidney cancer. And I will never forget the day in the hospital where the doctors kind of like announced that that unfortunately there is nothing they could do more. And as such, (laughs) neither the family could do anything more. And we just need to be prepared. And I remember myself, you know, sitting there and for the first time having this huge a sense of duty that, yes, it was true. The doctors couldn't do more. My family couldn't do more, but I could, and I wanted to do more. And unfortunately, when, wow. yeah, that story is still very emotional for me. And unfortunately, you know, you talk a lot about human stories. When, when my grandfather passed away, I promised myself and to him that I will do as much as I can. And then uh, that got me into bioinformatics, machine learning, where where the two different types of master's degrees that I was doing. And then from there to my uh, PhD in biomedicine, and my research career. And then the third realization was, as I was well into my PhD and my research career, that not only I was realizing that I could do more, but like, and I was doing more at that point, but actually the whole sector could do more. The problem is that the sector, uh, like the biggest bottleneck in the sector wasn't anymore the research or even the data generation uh, and but it was actually how do you translate all of this? And that was the point where, for me, I took the chance to create LifeBit in order to bring that impact to life. So those were kind of like the, if you like, the the big (laughs) milestone realizations that got me to LifeBit today. Wow, thank you for sharing that. That's an incredibly powerful story. Um, And I'm sure that your grandfather would be incredibly proud of the work that you're um, doing now. That's fantastic. Tell us a bit more about 
life bit like what is the what's the vision what's um what's the company trying to do i should point out at this point that uh it's not that it's a conflict but i guess in a sense of transparency that um that you know life is a partner working with genomics england but um for people who are not familiar with it just give us a, a bit of the sort of the basics of why you set the company up and what you're trying to do with it so the big mission and vision of LifeBit is to make sure that any data that can be used to cure these diseases is actually used. And how you do that is by actually connecting as many data as possible uh, out there, coming from many different data sources, but also many different types, because genomics data by itself is not enough. You need to combine with clinical data, phenotypic, lifestyle, sensor data, environmental data, all types of data, and bring it together for any given patient in order to understand and better treat that patient to cure the, the diseases that uh, that patient has. And why that is important, Chris, is if you think kind of like the whole human history, there have been two big fundamental shifts. The number one shift is that for the first time in human history, we know what are the questions that we need to ask to cure any given disease or big part of the questions that we need to ask. And we spend all of our human history to get to this point. And, and the second big shift is that for the first time, we actually uh, do have data, relevant data to answer these, if you like, disease curing questions and the means to generate more. So then the problem from there shifts into now, how can we get as many of these data as possible uh, and, and use it? And the, the good news is that you already have many big organizations across the world, but even here in UK, right? Which why I am so passionate that Life is a UK company, like Genomics England, big universities, our future health with the 5 million uh, project, many other organizations that are generating this data at large scale. And, and now the problem is not, as I said, <laughs> the data generation is how do you actually connect this data? Because this data is siloed right now. And it is siloed because security is paramount. So security is putting roadblocks on connectivity, but also huge roadblocks on the accessibility and usability of this data. And these are the two fundamental problems that LifeBit is, is solving at this point in time. Huge questions there. And I love uh, the framing of that in the context of all of human history. <laughs> like, Hippocrates would be, uh, I think, excited about where we've got to over the last few thousand years. So I guess some, some people when hearing, you know, we need every piece of data about every angle of um, a, a patient's life if we want to treat that patient the best, or we want to, we need all of these different types of data if we want to understand more about um, how we can create new drugs and therapeutics and so on. It risks sounding a bit sort of big brother, right? Big brother is watching you. We have all this data. You talked about security. How do we guard against data being used in ways that the, the people whose data it is, the patients, the, the research participants, whoever it is, wouldn't want? How can we understand uh, what the right thing or the wrong thing to do with those data sets are? How can we protect people's privacy? That is a great question. So again, Genomics England has pioneered already a lot of that. So uh, and, and we're working closely now with Genomics England to make sure that that security model, it becomes scalable and it becomes more usable to democratize the use of this data, right? So when you look at what is that, uh, you know, paramount secure model, it starts with the data needs to stay in place, right? Because the organizations that have actually been 
approved and verified to actually collect and, and keep this data safe, they've already put all of these uh, security environments in place. So as long as you keep the data there, then already that's 90% of the battle, as I like to say. The second um, bit of that is then the technology that you now put on top of this data to make this data accessible and usable, can that technology make sure that every use of that data is tracked and is properly profiled so we know at any point in time who is doing what with this data? And then the third element of this, the, the most difficult, I would say, element is now that we make sure we keep the data in place, we make sure that there is full tracking and logging of this data of any activity happening over this data. The third thing then becomes how do now we connect this data with other with other organizations' data that are also staying in place? And there is where um, the concept of federated technology, which LifeBit has pioneered and we have a patent on it, comes into play. And effectively, federated technology allows you to combine data without moving data and without breaking this governance and compliance and auditability and tracking rules that need to be over the data to make sure that every activity that's, log, uh, that's happening with this data is properly, is properly effectively monitored. Got it. And, you know, we're working with LifeBit principally on, a, on research projects, but I think I'm right in saying that LifeBit also supports doctors and clinical teams in, um, in hospitals in different settings. How does that work where the data has to be identifiable in a hospital because we need to know we're treating um, you know, uh, Harry Potter, not Hermione Granger or whatever. We need to know who the patient is and we need to understand their background. Whereas on the research setting, we absolutely don't want to know whether it's Harry or Hermione or Ron or whoever. Um, we want it uh, de-identified. How does that work? Again, without uh, endangering him going too technical, how we do that is by providing uh, two different portals, right? The What we call the clinical portal and the research portal. And already that separates the access and security levels uh, and the data, uh, how the data is structured, anonymized, aggregated, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, for the different uh, user groups that are having access to that. Uh, again, this is kind of like the tip of the iceberg, but there is a lot of security layers, a lot of things that happens with the data uh, beneath that in, in order to, to, to show it into that level. Definitely, again, what I have to say here is like, you know, sounds very Shakespearean, but eventually you need to be thinking about uh, security and usability that is democratizing the, the user experience uh, effectively. That's, that's pretty much what we are trying to, to do here. And you describe LifeBit as an artificial intelligence company. And I think a lot of people when they think artificial intelligence, maybe think, okay, DeepMind playing Go um, or kind of chatbots um, or, you know, a robot that can talk back to you. Um, in this context, what kind of um, use cases, I guess, are um, either doctors or researchers using artificial intelligence for? And how does LifeBit sort of enable them to do those things. So when you think about connecting data, it's not just about connecting uh, silo data. It's also about connecting all of the publicly available data that are now spread across the social media, different databases, different blogs from actually different individuals and, and so on and so forth. So 
For example, there we have a huge partnership with uh, long-term partners with Boringer Ingelheim and where we are actually doing real-time disease monitoring to identify first and foremost disease outbreaks across the world, but also monitor the evolution of the different diseases that uh, Boringer cares. So then their R&D teams can actually start focusing uh, their activities and prioritizing uh, effectively the therapeutics that they are developing. And that is one big use case, which highlights that one of the biggest things that, again, AI is going to be playing a role is actually this, you know, with the connectivity of the data and actually this real-time way of doing that connectivity because humans cannot, for example, read you know, hundreds of thousands of papers or blog posts or Twitter posts on a daily basis. But AI technology can. So that definitely that is a really big application. The second application, again, when we go back to siloed uh, data that are very sensitive across different organizations in the world, again, where AI can help is, is actually speeding up the analysis and the learnings from this data as these data are being connected in a federated framework. And, and we see that more and more, like, Obviously, we work with we work within UK with you know Genomics England, other big organizations that are adopting federated approaches, are adopting AI as the way forward. But even in our conversations with more than 60, 70 governments out there and other and big organizations, we really see this drive around uh, around uh, first and foremost, everyone wants to copy UK and Genomics England, everything from governance and technology and uh, and usability and, and what is Genomics England thinking next. But even beyond that, it is very clear that, that the world wants to actually adopt these technologies and bring them to life to solve real life problems for the patients. That, that's kind of like where I see AI going in, in kind of like the more real life applications. Got it. And you've mentioned this, you know, mind-blowing amount of data uh, out there across genomic data, clinical data, imaging, uh, public data, like social media, blogs, you know, scientific papers and so on. You had a great quote in a, um, a presentation at the data science conference last year that we're now seeing more genomic data generated on a daily basis than data from YouTube and Twitter combined, um, which is quite extraordinary. There's obviously in the, on the back end, a lot of heavy lifting around bringing those data sources together, running complex analytics on them and generating insights. On the front end, so to speak, when I'm a researcher or I'm a doctor in a team in a hospital, how do you think about making those insights kind of human digestible in a way that's not overwhelming for a, yeah, a researcher, a doctor, whoever is, is trying to make a decision or do something? Again, there is where... Um where a lot of things come into play, right? Um, so uh, first and foremost is the standardization of the data. The data needs to be speaking the same language, need to be formatted in, in the same manner. And the decision on how you actually um, format this data and how you make it, let's say, universally understandable, it, it cannot just be dictated by a company. It should be a community-driven approach. And we work with a lot of different community organizations to make sure we bring those best standards in, into life. So I do believe that's number one, because otherwise, um, yeah, without that, you cannot run beautiful queries like, I want women over 35 that have cancer and a particular mutation on certain genes. And again, findability of data is the number one thing that normally anyone will do in any setting, research or clinical. The, the second thing is when you run the different complex analysis, 
is actually, as I said, to do this matching between the analysis and, and the disease curing question you are trying to answer, right? You know, you don't get like a, a weird uh, scientific <laughs> explanation of like, what is this type of analysis, but rather, what is the question that this type of an analysis is answering? That is kind of like the second thing. And you create that user-driven approach. And, and the th third thing is, again, and that's what our experience shows, clinicians and researchers alike, they're very smart people. So even when you give them the insights, they want to have these interactive environments, visualizations, way to actually interact and verify the findings and get the explanation. So you need to make sure that your, pro your technology provides that. I think if you have these three basic elements, I think, yeah, <laughs> again, I believe 90% of the battle is, is won there. Very interesting. So give us a sense of how the technology is being used today. And I loved the Beringer-Ingelheim example earlier for a global understanding of how different diseases are kind of evolving and playing out in the real world. Maybe give us a, a bit more flavor of how some of these users are actually deploying the technology. What other kinds of things are actually possible today that maybe a few years ago seemed uh, you know, out of reach? Absolutely. So going back to my Born in Ingleheim example, not only the users using the system are able to have a beautiful interactive map, just showing like, uh, you know, all of these futuristic things that you normally see in movies. <laughs> actually, the people have put it in users' hands where you can actually see different dots and kind of like, you know, blinking and, and showing all of kind of like what's happening with the different diseases. And then you can click further and get, you know, narrowed down to the information. But also from there, the users are able to, to narrow down further and understand for every disease, what are the drugs out there that are being used for this disease? What are kind of like novel compounds that have been just published that could potentially uh, uh, um, be targeting this disease and how you could repurpose different drugs and then even from there if like could there even be some <laughs> novel chemical compound that no one thought right and there is where a lot of the nlp and deep learning technology can help with obviously the um, you know by again connecting this data together now that's one big example. Now, when we look at, for example, you know, the work we're doing um, for the Hong Kong Genome Project, uh, which is, I would say, one of the biggest end-to-end -end deployment that uh, in precision medicine that LifeBit has done, and I think <laughs> the world has seen, we really start from patient recruitment in the hospitals, and and we provide uh, again a patient management module where literally clinicians and, and recruiters can actually come and register the patient, capture all of their information, make sure they link it to any clinical data coming from the hospital directly. And then from there, even like, you know, when they take the sample, log, in, log the sample into the system. And then from there, we have a lab portal, as we like to call it, where now monitors everything that's happening from the sample that has left the hospital until the data generation. And then we have an analysis portal where effectively make sure that once the data has been generated after, you know, the sample processing and the, the patient uh, data being input into the system, then how can it turn this raw data to what we call analysis and research ready data? And then from there, of course, you have your two different portals that I explained in the report, the research portal, 
and and the clinical portal where now researchers can come and clinicians and then they can actually now turn these analysis ready data to actionable insights and as you can understand um for life it has been a huge effort over the past couple of years to bring that technology to life and make it truly end to end so we can we can power the whole journey effectively wow and where do you think we'll be in five or 10 years time as we start to derive more and more insights from this intersection of all these different data types, the, the genome, the, the proteome, the transcriptome, the imaging, the metabolome, you know, we're getting more and more granular insights about the body every day. What, do you, what are you most excited about as you look into the future? I mean, the most exciting thing on a high level is moving from curing diseases to preventing diseases. I think that's that's my next big mission in like in life, and I think for life with as well, right? Not just cure diseases, but also prevent diseases uh, because prevention um, it, it actually makes sure that your quality of life is great and it is sustained at a great level. I think that that's the end goal. And I think there is, you know, with more data and more connected data from different sources and different types, as you were saying, I think that is the future that effectively we, we are enabling. Very cool. And these conversations that we're having are part of what we're loosely calling a sort of national conversation about genomics. As you engage in the field and you talk to different people, researchers, members of the public, patients, doctors, as genomics comes more and more into the mainstream of healthcare and the mainstream of people's lives, what do you think are some of the most important topics that maybe we're not talking enough about? What should we be, uh, what should we be bringing to the fore through these uh, these conversations? I do believe democratization of the data is actually the, the biggest thing uh, that, and I wouldn't say we do not talk much about it, but I think like where we could do a better job at defining more, what does that mean, right? Let me give you an example. You know, every investment banker out there, you know, has connected data from 25 years ago uh, that, that they used on demand for actually building any financial product. Same goes for consultants. And my husband is a consultant working for Bain. They have, you know, data from decades, right? connected data that they, they use in their job. Yet the researchers and clinicians simply do not have easy access to those data that can use in order to improve diagnosis and reach research breakthroughs. So I think where we need to be doing a better job is literally defining how that democratization looks like, which groups it involves, how can we get there uh, much faster, while at the same time uh, maintaining uh, security, but in a connected data world, right? I think that that's the problem. We talk a lot about security and we talk a lot about, yes, some researchers can use the data, but we are not talking effectively about security in a connected data world and usability for all users that could do and should be doing something with this data in, again, in a connected data world. Yeah, I love that. I love that phrase, democratization of data. And I think there's a really interesting theme in some of the conversations I've had recently around this shift from a what we might loosely call a kind of patriarchal data system where an organization says, right, we have this data on uh, patients, we have this data on whatever, we know how best uh, to use it, we will, we will use it, we'll do our research and then we'll tell people what we think, um, to a system where we anchor, I guess, first off, 
it's not our data, it's the data of the patients, it's the data of the research participants, it's their data. Um, and more and more of them are really engaging brain heavily in what does, the, what does my data mean about me? What can I learn about that, about my disease or about, about if my kid is sick um, or whatever? We've had a few people, um, not many, but a, but a few, and I suspect it's something we're going to see more of, of um, participants from the 100,000 Genomes Project or um, people who've come through the Genomic Medicine Service saying, um, actually, I would, like, I would like access to the data on my genome because I, I want to explore it. Um, and we're starting to see hospitals like Imperial uh, in London, the patient portal there has six buttons. One of the buttons is upload my genome. <laughs> so I guess to expand on that theme of democratizing data, do you have any thoughts about patient-led democratization of data? Like what could that look like? A hundred percent. Life is already working on, on what we call patient portals, <laughs> uh, where actually we are trying to design and create an environment for patients and think, uh, and it's one of our big R&D next innovation kind of like projects where we are trying to interview different patients and understand, again, it all starts with like the questions they want to ask from the data to understand first and foremost, what are the questions that they have? And then um, what type of analysis then we could use to answer those questions? And then how do you present that and you enable that in, in a way that it is easy for them because they are not researchers and they are not clinicians, right? And it is tough, you know, um, but if you think about it, Chris, it's already done. I mean, 23andMe did it <laughs> with more, you know, if you like, not that big depth of data or complexity, but they already did the, the first step. And yes, it took them maybe about 10 years to really get it mainstream, but we need to be doing more there. We, you know, yes, we have more complex data, more connected data, but we need to, you know, there is a way we just need to find the way and, and we need to do it because the demand that you just got, just described is only going to grow larger. It's never going to grow smaller, right? Uh, and I can see it. I can see it from, you know, the millennial generation, but I can see it even from the younger generations coming <laughs> where they've been born into a world of data and information and just Googling things. So for them, it's very natural to be like, if I can Google things <laughs> and, you know, I can know everything about me, why I cannot like, you know, like be able to explore my own data effectively. Well, hugely inspiring. I look forward to checking in on where the, where the patient portal has, uh, has got to. Thank you so much for making the time to, to talk today. And I'm, I'm really excited about um, where this whole field is going and, uh, and what LifePit will do next. Thank you so much, Chris. <laughs> Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.